0: Okay, let's read God's word together as we find it in the book of the Acts. And in chapter 11, we're going to break into the story at verse 19. This is God's word. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Ending at verse 26, the Lord will bless his truth. To all our hearts, for Christ's sake. Amen. Those of you who are regulars here will know that this year in church, our theme has been seasons, and we've been walking our way through the seasons of the Christian year. We're in the last of those seasons at the moment, which is the season after Pentecost. And we've been looking at a number of things um, during that time. And at the moment, we're looking at uh, the gifts that Christ has given to his church in in a number of significant ministries. We started this series a few Sundays ago, and I suggested at that point in time that if the gospel was a piece of music, what would the church have to be to play that piece of music, all right? All right. We discovered a couple of weeks ago that we can't be Ed Sheeran, that won't work, and we can't be Snow Patrol because that won't work either. Because the music of the gospel is a symphony, which means to play it you need an orchestra, and a modern symphonic orchestra is composed of around a hundred people who all play different instruments and different scores, and therefore anything else, no matter how talented would reduce the piece. You need a full orchestra to play a symphony. And if you try to do it in any other way, you just reduce it. Yesterday, uh, Friday here, um, was it Friday? Yeah, I think it was. We had Lewis... And Gemma's wedding. It was Friday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Friday. And um, we had Lewis and Gemma's wedding here, and we had a good time in church. And then they headed down to Clandyboy for the reception. I ducked home to grab a sandwich and then headed down. When I got down to Clandyboy, they were all milling about outside. It was a beautiful day. But, but inside, um, in the area where some people were sitting near the bar, there were a couple of musicians playing, okay? So there was a guy um, on a guitar, and there was another guy on drums. And, and that was basically it. So it was a, it was a two-piece band. And as I was listening to them, they played one of my favorite tracks by one of my favorite artists, okay? So they played Learning to Fly by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, okay? Uh, That probably makes me a very sad person. But anyway, one of my favorite pieces of music, okay? And so Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are a little bit more than one guitarist and a drummer, okay? So, although it was really cool to hear the song that I like, and I went and thanked them for it afterwards, um, actually, it, was the, it somehow or other wasn't quite the same as if you listened to it on the album, okay? Because it was meant to be played by a full band, not by your man on his guitar with his mate, the drummer. It was meant to be a full band, and it just somehow wasn't quite the whole deal. And, and it's the same with the gospel, that, the Lord Jesus has given us the message to proclaim. If you think about it like a piece of music, you need a symphony orchestra to play it because it's a symphony. Anything else, anything other than a variety of people with different abilities, each playing to their strengths, anything other than that is not the full message. And to enable the church to play the symphony, Jesus gave us gifts. He gave us five ministries. Paul tells us about this um, in Acts chapter four. Uh, sorry, in Ephesians chapter four. And and the basic idea of this series that we have is to look at those five ministries, discover what it was that Jesus gave to the church. Um, and to learn about that. And we've been helped in this by a book by Alan Hirsch, which is called 5Q. I'll tell you a bit more about that as time goes on. Um, Actually, what's interesting is this book was published about a year or so ago, um, and uh, the illustrations in it have been done by our own Ben Connolly member of our own church who also did illustrations in one of Pete Gregg's books. He has done the illustrations in this book. And the symbols that we have on screen are his. We have his permission and Alan Hirsch's permission to use them, okay? And each of those symbols is meant to depict one of the five ministries. And my wife asked me what the symbols were for last Sunday. And I said, well, that's what they're for. She said, well, do you not think you should explain that, John? So, I'm doing what my wife told me to do, okay? So the five symbols, there's one for each of the different ministries that we're talking about. Apostles, okay? We start from the left and work to the right. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or shepherds, and teachers. What we discovered Thinking about this a couple of Sundays ago is Jesus gave the church five ministries so we could be an orchestra to play the symphony, which is the message of the gospel. But in the local church, we have reduced it to two. We more or less cut out the first three, apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Some of those people still exist, and we still recognize that, but by and large, they don't really operate in the local church. They operate outside of that. In the local church, we've reduced it to pastors and teachers. And not only have we tended to reduce it to two ministries, but we have said that those ministries are also leadership positions, okay? So the people up the front do that bit, everybody else isn't really a part of that. Imagine a symphony orchestra with only strings and percussion trying to perform Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It would hardly be surprising if by halftime there was virtually nobody left in the theater. People would have gone home because it wasn't what they came to hear. They came to hear a symphony and what they've got is only a fraction of the symphony because they've only got the strings and the percussion. But if you could reinstate the woodwind and the brass and because Beethoven's Ninth is a choral symphony, reinstate the choir as well, you might just get the people back in after halftime. And couldn't the present demise of the church perhaps be explained in the same way? That because we reduced the gifts that Jesus gave to the church from five to two, you're not really hearing, not really seeing, not really experiencing the gospel the way in which Jesus intended it to be seen and experienced in the life of the church. Because we've only got the woodwind and percussion and we've lost the other three. So we've set ourselves in this series to try to rediscover this five-fold ministry. And as Michael pointed out last Sunday um, when, when he was dealing with this subject, every believer will possess some element of all five. So as we go through these Sundays, all of them will probably resonate in some way with you everyone possesses some element of all five, but also everyone will probably be one in particular. You say, well, that's Irish, isn't it? You've got all five, but you're one in particular. But think about it. That's not that uncommon in life. I have a friend who um, is the organist and musical director in a congregation in Belfast. He was also, for his professional life, a French horn player with the Ulster Orchestra. He is a top-class musician. And if you heard him play in church, you'd probably think, "Whoa, he's he's really quite good, actually. But that's not his instrument. His instrument is not a piano or a keyboard or an organ. His instrument is the French horn, but it's really difficult to lead worship with just a French horn. So he's a musician. He can play loads of instruments. But one in particular is the one in which he has practiced and in which he is really gifted. And, And It's kind of the same with these five ministries that Jesus gave, that there'll be some element of each of them that will strike a chord with a believer because of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, but there's going to be one in particular that you've been called to exercise especially. Last Sunday, we were thinking about teachers, people with a grasp of the Word of God who have also been grasped by the Word of God and who have the passion and the ability to tell it to others. And hopefully in church last Sunday, some people's hearts began to soar because you thought, hey, that's me. That's what makes me tick. That's what I want to do. That's when I really feel I'm doing what God has called me to do. But don't worry if your heart didn't soar because there's four more to come, all right? And one of those four will be yours if the first one wasn't. And today we're going to move on. Today we're going to think about shepherds. Usually this particular word we translate with the word pastor, but the word pastor can be a little bit confusing because the word pastor tends to be associated with somebody who does my job. Okay. And that, that's not the meaning of this word. All right. So um, it's more kind of literal translation as the word shepherd. So we're going to work with the idea of shepherd pastor. I of course will forget and say pastor because I'm so used to saying pastor, but actually we're going to think about it in terms of being a shepherd. And as usual, as we said last Sunday, Jesus is our model. And as we study his ministry, we see that being a shepherd means that you look at people in a particular way. What do I mean by that? Well, in Mark chapter 6, the disciples return to Jesus to report back on a mission trip that they've been on. Jesus has sent them out in twos, and he has given them a message to proclaim. And in Mark chapter 6, they come back, and they're excited, and, and they're full of energy and enthusiasm to tell Jesus about all the things that happened to them And as this kind of report back is going on, Jesus realizes that these guys are exhausted. And so he decides they need a break. And and they set out on a boat across the lake to get a bit of peace and quiet. But the crowds figure out where they're going. And they get to the other side of the lake at the same time. And when they get there and get out of the boat, we read these words uh, about Jesus When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. What did Jesus the shepherd see when he saw the crowd? Well, if Jesus had been a businessman and he saw a crowd, he would have seen a market. Or if Jesus had been an entertainer and saw the crowd, he would have seen an audience. Or if Jesus had been a politician and seen the crowd, he would have seen a resource. What couldn't I achieve if I could motivate these people? But when a pastor looks at a crowd, he or she sees a need. That's what Jesus saw. He had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? He shelves his plans. He disappoints his friends. And he responds to the need that he sees. The church needs people who see crowds this way. Jesus shows us that teachers, which of course Jesus was, need a pastor's heart because that's what happens here Jesus goes on to teach the crowds. He spends time with them, even though he is tired and his friends are tired and there are other things he really wanted to do. He stops because when a person with a shepherd's heart sees a crowd, they see a need. And if you're going to be a teacher or an evangelist, you need a pastor's heart Bishop Frank Houghton was one of the key leaders in the overseas, what was the China Inland Mission, and then later the Overseas Missionary Fellowship through the years. And uh, he wrote a hymn, which is generally thought to be the, the kind of the hymn of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Um, and really the hymn is about evangelism. The first line of the hymn, you, you may recognize, it goes facing a task unfinished. It, it's about the mandate Jesus has given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that task has not yet been achieved. There are still people who have to hear. There's still languages that do not possess the scriptures. There's still loads of things that have to be done. So it's an unfinished task, the task of evangelism. And that's what the hymn is about. But in this hymn, you will hear a pastor's heart. This is the words of the second verse. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway. Where forces that defied thee defy thee still today. With none to hear their crying for life and love and light. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. This is a hymn about evangelism, but it was written by the pastor's heart. Here's a person who sees people with a need. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. And it is that need that is seen by a pastor's heart that drives the work of evangelism. So some of the other ministries uh, that we're going to talk about in this series need a little bit of this as well, a pastor's heart. And a good example of a shepherd pastor is the person we call Barnabas. You meet him largely in the book of the Acts. He only appears on three occasions outside of that, but he appears quite often in the book of the Acts. And when you look at what the book of the Acts says about this guy called Barnabas, you discover that Barnabas was an apostle, just like Paul, according to Acts chapter 14. Barnabas was also a prophet. His message in Iconium, Dr. Luke says, was confirmed by signs and wonders. He was also an evangelist. When the apostles sent him down to Antioch, which we read about earlier in the service, to see what was going on, we read that, quote, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And Barnabas was a teacher one of the five who are mentioned in Acts chapter 13 who belonged to the church in Antioch. So he was an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, and a teacher. And as if that wasn't enough, above all else, he was a shepherd pastor. How do we know that? Because of his nickname. Now, I'm aware that nicknames are not always a reliable guide to the character of the person who has the name When I was at school, I used to work on the holidays uh, in a cold storage firm in in Derry, and uh, there was a bunch of guys who worked there, and they were a a really great, fun bunch of guys to be with. And like most people in a place like that, everybody had a nickname. And I remember one guy in particular, he was a lorry driver. He was probably a man in his late 50s at this stage, Um, and uh, he, I'm not quite sure how to put it, but, He never rushed anywhere like, and when you asked him to do anything, you know, you had to take half an hour before he could even get himself out of the office and into the cab of his lorry. And if he went to do a delivery that would take anybody else an hour to do, he was never back for more, you know, in less than about two or three hours. He was really, really slow. The foreman in the yard gave him a nickname. The nickname was Speedy. You get it, okay? And that's kind of what we do with nicknames. So nicknames are not always a great guide to the person who holds the name because sometimes you know they're the exact opposite of what that person is. And this guy that we're talking about had a nickname. In the book of the Acts, we discover that Barnabas wasn't called Barnabas. Barnabas was his nickname. His real name was Joseph. He was a Levite. He was a Jew who came from Cyprus. But Dr. Luke tells us this. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This was, this was Joseph's nickname. He was a son of encouragement, which is a Jewish way of saying he was an encourager. It was what everybody thought about him. If he came into a room, the atmosphere changed from negative to positive. That was who he was. And later on in Acts chapter 11, in those verses we read earlier in the service, when the apostles sent him to Antioch to see what is going on, we find out about the character that Joseph or Barnabas had, which caused the disciples to give him this nickname. And that character is the character of a shepherd pastor. And if you have that ministry, if God has called you to that ministry, some of the things I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes are things that you will know you have. And if you don't see them, other people will see them in you. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 11 about Barnabas. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. As we think about these words about Barnabas, we learn that people who are pastoral in nature, people who have a shepherd character, have a number of features. And, and the first thing about them is this they are people who rejoice. The stoning of Stephen, which took place in Jerusalem, had made a big impact on the church there. People started to move away because of the persecution uh, to go and live someplace else because it was dangerous now to live in the city if you were a Christian. And so they started to go. But as they went, they did something incredible. They were leaving Jerusalem because being Christians was getting them into trouble. What did they do? Everywhere they went, they told everybody they were Christians. It wasn't really a very clever idea, but that's exactly what they did. In fact, it uses a word in Acts chapter 8, which kind of implies that what they did was they gossiped the gospel as they went. In other words, it was just part of their natural conversation. They, 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 they just told people as they chatted them about whatever they were chatting about, how much Jesus meant to them and who they really were. Initially, of course, these people came from Jerusalem. They were all Jews. So wherever they would go, they would try to find a Jewish community and they would settle into it and they would tell their Jewish friends and neighbors about Jesus. But then some of them took a step further and started to witness to Gentiles as well. And when they did this, something incredible happened. Gentile people came to faith. And that's how common church got founded in Antioch because some people went there initially and started to witness to their Jewish neighbors, and some of them came to faith. But then some others started to talk to their Gentile neighbors, and they too came to faith. And so whenever Barnabas got sent down from Jerusalem and came to the church in Antioch, what he found was a church that was in, to tell you the truth, a bit of a mess. And it actually says in the text it was going to take a year to put it right. That's how long he and Paul stayed and, and taught and, and, and encouraged and helped that fellowship. But even though it was a bit topsy turvy and a bit, you know, wasn't really planned, and so it kind of just grew the way that it grew, even though that was the case, when Barnabas looked at the people, all he could see was what the Lord had already done in them, and it made him glad. He could have spent his time looking and thinking to himself, oh, this place is a nightmare. I'm going to get new leaders appointed. We're going to have to sort out some of these difficult people. And some people here believe some stuff that isn't really right. And he could have got into that kind of mode. But that wasn't how Barnabas reacted at all because he had a shepherd heart. So as he looked at this group of people, what did he see? He saw what God had already done, and he rejoiced in it. Later in the story, he and Paul would fall out over John Mark, who was Barnabas's young cousin. The reason why they would fall out over John Mark was because when they were going to go on their second journey to go out and visit some of the churches where they had already um, been, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. Paul said, no way. No, no way. He, he kind of fluffed out of the first uh, trip and uh, we can't depend on him, so we can't come. But Barnabas insisted that he could come because all Paul could see were John Mark's feelings. But what Barnabas saw was what the Lord had already done in his life and he was glad for that. That's a shepherd's heart. Shepherd's heart looks at a crowd and sees a need but also sees in the lives of people that they work with what the Lord has already been doing. I remember coming in one day to the house in high dudgeon. I can't even remember now how I got into the state I was in. But anyway, I remember saying to Christine in, in a conversation, I said to her about a particular person. I can't even remember now who the person was. Do you see that person? They are totally devoid of any sense of the reality of God. And very quietly, as wives sometimes do to husbands who are in high flight, She said to me, I don't believe anybody is totally devoid of a sense of the reality of God. That's a shepherd's heart. That's what was true of Barnabas. Paul looked at John Mark and he thought, disaster. Barnabas looked at him and thought, God has already started something and I want to see what he's going to do. That's a shepherd's heart. You look at a life." Or you look at a fellowship, which is a mess, and you see the glory of the Lord in the mess. First thing that was true of Barnabas was he rejoiced. He rejoiced in people. He rejoiced in what God was doing in people. That was his starting place. But then the second thing about Barnabas was that he also believed... This ability to look at people and be glad wasn't because Barnabas had some misty-eyed, sentimental confidence that the people in Antioch were amazing. You know how it is nowadays. Everybody is amazing. Everything is amazing. Listen to people on the television all the time. That, that wasn't where Barnabas was coming from. So he'd walk into any room and think everybody was incredibly amazing. These people in Antioch made his heart glad because he knew what God could do in their lives and his confidence was in the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit who filled him. That's what the text says about him. He was a good man filled with the Holy Spirit. And as such then, he was confident that God could do something amazing here. These weren't amazing people. They were just ordinary people like himself. But he knew, he believed that God could do something incredible in them and through them. Wasn't that why it was he, Barnabas, Who introduced Saul of Tarsus to the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem? Remember when Saul became a Christian? And he came up to Jerusalem after he had to flee from Damascus. When he came there, it says he tried to join with the church there, but nobody would let him in because they all thought it was a ruse. They thought, well, let him in here. That'll just, he'd get to know who everybody is. And before we know where we are, we'll all be in jail, if not dead. And so they wouldn't let him in. But we read in Acts 9 and 26, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. It says in the text that when Barnabas brought Saul to the apostles, he told them what had happened in Saul's life. And the evidence for the change in that life of his witness and testifying ministry that he had already been doing in Damascus. See, Barnabas knew that the Lord was capable of such a great transformation. Barnabas knew that Saul really could be everything he said he was, not because of Saul, but because of the Lord in whom Barnabas believed. And so shepherds might start from where people are, People with a shepherd heart might be glad to welcome someone in and to see what is good and positive and what is of the Lord's mercy and grace in a person's life. They might be happy to start with people where they are, but they believe that those people do not need to stay where they are. They believe that no matter what their background, no matter what their story no matter what baggage they carry or scars that have not healed, they believe that God is able to do something about all that. And Jesus arrived at the home of Jairus, the synagogue leader. His 12-year-old daughter was dead. And the house was a place of mourning. And if you think about that in church terms, here is a place for somebody trained in pastoral care, isn't it? This is a house where there's been a bereavement. A child has died. People are bereft. They are in mourning and in deep sadness. This is the very place for somebody trained in pastoral care to come along, to sit down beside them and calm the situation down and and enable people to walk through the horror of what has just happened. But what does Jesus do? He criticizes the mourners for their grief, puts them all out of the house, Then he takes the dead girl's hand and his, and he says, Talitha, cum," And she gets up. This is not the response that you expect. You expect that Jesus, above all people, would know the right things to say. How often in bereaved circumstances... We struggle to find words. People are often offended. They will often say to me, you know, whenever so-and-so died, some of my friends, you know, they never said anything to me, but the reason why they never said anything was because they didn't know what to say. They didn't have any words for it. And you're thinking to yourself, in the situation in Jairus' home, Jesus will have the words. That isn't what he does. He raises the child from the dead. He changes the circumstance completely and entirely. And people with a shepherd's heart believe. They believe that no matter what the circumstances are, when they encounter a life and welcome that life with joy and with gladness, with honor and with respect, they enter that situation knowing that that life doesn't need to continue to be the way it is right now that all of that can be changed. Either by their patient support or by the exercise of signs and wonders, they believe in the power of God to change the people they meet. That's a pastor's heart. It's a heart that rejoices every person who comes, who sees the Lord at work, but it's a heart that believes that this person can be changed. And the third thing about the pastor's heart is the ability to gather. So the apostles send Barnabas down to Antioch to bring things into line. You need to go down there and sort it out because I'm quite sure it's a mess. So they send him down. And the first thing Barnabas does when he gets there, after he has assessed the situation, he comes down, he takes a look, the first thing he does is leaves Antioch to make a 250-mile round trip to Tarsus. And he leaves Antioch to make this 250-mile round trip so he can get this guy Saul, now known as Paul, a Christian who's been away there for quite a number of years now, out of the kind of key leadership of the church, and he goes down to Tarsus to look for him and to find him and to bring him back to Antioch. Weird or what? Would it not have been more important for Barnabas to get on with the job he was given to in the first place, which was sort out the mess, deal with the situation in Antioch, help the church to become what the church needed to be? Well, Yes, of course, that was what Barnabas was there to do. But like other shepherd pastors you encounter in the Scriptures, Barnabas built teams. He built teams. He didn't do stuff on his own. When you read in Acts 13 that there was a team of at least five gifted teachers and preachers in Antioch, how do you suppose that happened? It probably happened because Barnabas built that team. He found those people. He realized their gifts. He encouraged them. He brought them on to the the team. And that was how this church in Antioch, partly how this church in Antioch, became the amazing church that it was, became the church that would be the first church to begin the mission to the rest of the world into the Gentile nations so that you and I are sitting in this church today. All because Barnabas built a team. He went and he found the people who would help him meet the need that he saw. People who liked him believed in the power of the Lord to change the circumstances. That's what he did. And that's what people with a shepherd's heart do. People with a pastor's heart build teams. It's who they are. Jesus was the only son of God, the one to whom the Father gave the spirit without measure. Who did he need? And yet... Even he called and appointed apostles. Jesus built a team. And that's what people with a shepherd heart do. They build teams. They draw their people into the work. They never see themselves as the sole savior of the situation. They realize that... The gospel is a symphonic movement. It requires an orchestra to make it work. So they go and get other people and they draw them alongside and they do it together with others. And that's the strength of a pastor's heart. Shepherd pastors see people as they are. They rejoice in every individual who comes, no matter what baggage, no matter what hassle, no matter what issues they bring. The moment they come, they rejoice in that life and in what the grace of the Lord has already done. And then they believe that that life doesn't need to stay the way that it is, that by the power of God and through the witness and support of ordinary Christian believers, that life can be changed. And they build a team to make that possible. It's a really good example of this in the New Testament. We probably don't see it in this light normally. Think about it. Somebody had a friend, and their friend was paralyzed. He'd been paralyzed for years. And they loved their friend, and they visited them regularly and helped them out with stuff. And then one day they heard about Jesus. And they thought to themselves, if I could get my friend to Jesus, he could deal with the situation. So he spoke to other friends, and he said, hey, are you doing anything on Thursday? No. Well, that guy Jesus is uh, down the road, and um, if you were free on Thursday, just a few of us, we, we could get your man here to him. They got him on his bed, and they carried him. We don't know how far. They got him to a house. Jesus was there, all right, but there was no way in, especially not for four men with a stretcher. They got up on the roof, they dug a hole, they set their friend down at the feet of Jesus, and that man left carrying his bed, healed. That's pastor's heart. His friend was glad for all of the potential of his friend's life, and, and he believed that it could be changed. He built a team to get his friend to Jesus so that it could be changed. That's a pastor's heart. A church needs teachers, needs people who have gripped and grasped the Word of God, but who have been grasped by that Word themselves and who have the passion and ability to go and tell it. And maybe that's you. But the church needs shepherd pastors. The church needs people who rejoice in everyone who comes, even the odd people that nobody else wants to sit beside. They rejoice in them. They are glad for what they see of what God is already doing in that life. And and then they believe that God can change that life and make it different, and they build a team. They gather other people and make that possible. We need shepherd pastors. And there are some sitting here, Right now, some of this stuff resonates with you. It's exactly who you are. Your your, your person sitting beside you, your husband, your wife, your friend, somebody you don't really even know, but they've seen you about the place. They're sitting there thinking, that's her. That's him. We need that ministry in the life of the church to begin to play the symphony that is the gospel. You think about that while we bring our offering to God.